Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. I'm Chris Tyrewalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. And this is Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down the news about the news, what's going right and what's going wrong with the American news media. And Eliana Johnson, you brought me a brownie today. I with, came in. With Havla. Uh, Halva. Alva. Chris did not know what Halva was. We celebrate. We celebrate. Sesame paste. It's in honor of Purim, the Jewish holiday. St. Patrick's Day and Purim are on the same day? Purim, I think, was yesterday. And what do we, uh, the only thing I know about Perm was what was in one of the Waiting for Guffman guys movies. You know, the, did, did you like those movies? I don't, I think I saw that. So you had A Mighty Wind. Was there one about, uh, Best in Show was the one they did. Oh, about Best in Show is so good. Best in Show. And the, the greatest of them all is Waiting for Guffman, where it's a, it's about local theater. But Home for Perm was the name of a movie. Oh, a, I love a, that. A satirical movie that they were doing a, so what? How, do, how does one celebrate Purim? Dress up in costumes. There's lots. There are carnivals where the little kids dress up in costumes. Really? And yeah, homentachen is the treat that you eat, which is a triangle-shaped cookie with a filling, because the villain in the biblical story, Haman, wore a triangle-shaped oh, yeah. hat. So this is, is this Ruth? Is this the... Is, no, it's Esther. Esther, sorry. Esther. Sorry, Ruth fans. It's Esther. My apologies. And, of and course, the, the king is Ahashverosh. Okay. And it's a great story. St. Patrick's Day. We're recording this on St. Patrick's Day. I'm wearing green. I'm sitting in a room with two women wearing mostly black, black and gray. But that's Jewish women. That's all right. Well, there there are Jews in Ireland. I'm sure. I'm sure there are Jews in Ireland. There's no there's no reason. And I wrote I wrote about today for my note for the dispatch about how Irish America. I cover politics. My I'm half Irish, but I cover politics, so I love the Irish because there's no group in America that is more politically has been more important to America politically than the Irish, including our current president. Deeply Irish, says a man who says malarkey without. Uh, totally. Uh, says malarkey with, with, without. So how are you celebrating? Well, you, you got, clearly broke keto to celebrate with halva. Well, the keto, we got to get brownie. we got to get back on that. But celebrating with the man children and corned beef and cabbage and you do oh, the things and little so decorations good. and you got to do the stuff. You got to. Is there, is there like, a, other than beer, is there a St. Paddy's Day drink that one has? Well, I don't know whether you know this, but the Irish have some uh, connection to drinking over like, time. Is there some kind of a green drink? Well, you could make the, you could make a grasshopper, which is cream de menthe. We don't want to. We don't want to. Oh, we, that we, sounds good. We don't want to. We don't want to get into Vic Mattis's territory here and talk. Uh, about, totally. And and talk about. We don't want to turn you, a, jur- a journalism podcast into a, a hooch podcast. But you could make a grasshopper with cream de menthe and uh, green. Okay, I have like a real mom story. Speaking of drinking, okay. that I feel like the moms out there who I hope are listening. I know probably one wrote us to complain about my salty language, which we'll get. To, we'll get to that, but. So my daughter got her two-month vaccinations on Tuesday, oh. and she was great getting the shots. But then after. Uh, but then after, from like 2 o'clock to 9 o'clock, she was crying. Yeah. And so that was sad and everything, but by 8.45, I was like, I cannot hear a baby crying anymore. And my husband is just so zen. Like, he's fine to sit and have her crying there. And it wasn't even like the fact that she was crying that was upsetting to me, but just hearing the sound of a baby crying, I was going to go insane. So I got, literally got in bed, like horizontal with a gin and tonic. And then... It's 50s parenting. It's a throwback. Oh my gosh. So then I, I don't finish the drink and it's on my nightstand and it's basically full because I'm so tired mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. hearing the crying. And I, I'm i up in the middle of the night because I now can't sleep through the night. And I'm futzing around with, like, you know, breast pumps and all this stuff. The first thing I do is send this full gin and tonic, like, flying on the floor. Okay. Everywhere. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna say into the baby's uh, bassinet, but no, you're just no, no, no. Okay. She's in her crib. No, Gin lying soaked. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but I like literally had to get in my bed, 
closed the door, could not hear. And she tired herself out from crying so much that she slept through the night. Oh, there you go. So there's yeah. the upside. That's how, that's when the microchips that are in the vaccines, that's when you know that they've finally taken hold. Uh, yeah. That's exactly right. Well, we're glad that you're rested. Yeah. Uh, we have a an amazing item <laughs> atop our front page this week. <laughs> We have some Eliana favorites that we have some updates on. We're gonna we're gonna get to first. Atop our front page is the Cuomo brothers. They're back. Chris Cuomo is demanding one hundred and twenty-five million dollars. It's a lot of count them from CNN in arbitration, which Chris and I were talking about this. His his contract with CNN requires that he goes to arbitration before he can actually sue their bleeps. And <laughs> the lawsuit has some really hilarious outlandish claims. But basically, the you could boil it down. The lawsuit is pages and pages. You could boil it down to, they made me do it. Um, so or that they knew that what I did was wrong. But everybody knew that I was doing it at CNN, and it was part of the culture that the fact that he was helping his brother behind the scenes, and that he was helping it, and even even unto the the terminal offense, which was building the brief against the accusers, that everybody at CNN knew it, and he kind of has a point. Well, I believe that, but this was my favorite part from the Washington Post piece, which we'll link. Um, in the filing, Cuomo's team claims that CNN leadership quote demanded that he conduct these interviews, quote, despite Cuomo's and Governor Cuomo's expressed reservations. So they made him do it. He didn't really didn't want to do it. And then this also, last March, the Post reported Governor Cuomo arranged for his brother to get special access to state administers coronavirus tests. In the filing, Chris Cuomo's lawyers claim that Zucker and Gallist, who's Jeff Zucker, former CNN president Jeff Zucker's paramour and top CNN executive. Both now fired. Yeah. Also, quote, demanded priority testing from Governor Cuomo's administration and that the governor's staff, quote, felt it had no choice but to fulfill because of their, quote, power over Chris Cuomo's career. So the whole lawsuit wow. is that Jeff Zucker and his girlfriend made the Cuomo brothers do everything they did wrong, which is slightly different from, like, they knew about it, they had visibility into it. That, I believe. I don't believe, like, they made them do it. Well, I I will say this. In honor of uh, a, a belated perm, a lot of chutzpah for the Cuomo brothers as his, his the governor, the former governor, is uh, weighing a return to politics already to challenge his successor, Kathy Hoch- Hochul, and... Can you imagine how annoying that is for Democrats in New York State to have Chris Cuomo, who it took forever to get out of office after the sexual misconduct allegations, finally leaves and is already like, maybe I'll run. Who knows? And that is, these guys are, they're living out loud. I'll, I'll, I'll give them that. They're living out loud. They are the embodiment of, they are the platonic Definition of chutzpah. They got it. They definitely, and that I got to get better with my, for my chalva and my chutzpah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get my, I got to get my H's better. And I am linking those, both of those items in the show notes, but really you got to go read that Washington Post article on Andrew Cuomo's claims. I, I am going to predict. Hit me. That they settle with him because even if what he's saying is totally outlandish, they do not want to subject themselves well, to discovery. They'll, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll settle with him for something. He's coming in a little high at $125 million, Yes. But, you know, this— Because he's saying they didn't just deprive him of fulfilling his contract, which is, you know, a handful of millions of dollars. They deprived him of a decade of future earnings at $10 million a year. I mean, look, it's— I don't want to side with him on this because obviously any reasonable person would know that his conduct was inappropriate. But I mean, if that was it, the the Zucker culture, right, and what apparently was going on at CNN was not healthy on this stuff, and their Cuomo love was, I, I guess, I guess the point is the the sheer magnetism of the Cuomo brothers was so great to CNN that they it, it was a it was a what, what do we call this a toxic relationship. It was a toxic relationship for them. Up next, Chris, this is like, you know, the, the side column. Another, that's right. The, uh, the, uh, the, uh, your beat it also covers this this yes. category. 
the former New York Times reporter and present Washington Post columnist, Taylor Lorenz, she sat down with the former Obama bro and what is there? On Save America? Uh, no, that's but Crooked. Crooked Media, their podcast, they're like 20,000 million times bigger. I should know the name of the Crooked Media. Yeah. John Favreau for, for an interview. The interview hasn't aired. We will 100% break that down. This is the and air. this this is the woman folks will recall that we talked about last week who had two public very public spats with the New York Times White senior White House correspondent Maggie Haberman and it was uh, she was she beclowned herself in these things and talking about the need for brands and how the New York Times needs to let reporters have brands. Yes. And she, her brand is basically Twitter histrionics and getting into petty spats with other reporters and the subjects of her reporting, like venture capitalists on Twitter. Anyhow, <laughs> she sat down with this Obama bro to talk about, to talk more about this and to ignite more Twitter spats. And let's hear what she had to say. This is just the teaser. We're going to talk more about the whole interview next week. Oh my. Uh, hit it. What do you wish the Times had done more to protect you in that circumstance? And again, I don't want to just pick on the Times here. Like, what do you think media companies should do in general to protect their reporters from this kind of harassment? Well, the Times, I don't want to, like, signal them out because, like you said, I think this is probably true of every legacy media organization. Um, But the problem is, is that they buy they buy into this narrative like they they believe they they're like oh we're so sorry to hear that tucker carlson's targeting you but ultimately we're not really going to do anything to help protect your online reputation and by the way like why are you being so controversial that tucker carlson's so mad at you oh, really? right uh, yeah. yeah yeah and and you're and we've seen this play out i mean wes lowry has talked a lot about right. this um these media companies need to stop buying into these bad faith narratives. Neelai um, and The Verge actually wrote this great statement um, when Sarah Jong was uh, being attacked for saying, you know, tweets about white people or something. They were like, look, this is a bad faith campaign. We are not buying into it. You know, this is bullshit. And and this is what's happening. And explaining, this is the key thing that media organizations refuse to do. Explain to readers what's happening, right? Like, I wish there was a link that the New York Times had put out that was like, hey, Taylor's been the victim of this multi-platform smear campaign, which is what it is. Um, and here's and here's what this is, right? This Let's explain this. So when you see that crazy thing or when you see some VC saying this, let's call it what it is because it's a smear campaign. It's not legitimate. Let's... The best part is, let's recall, we hear how she characterized the New York Times uh, editorial page staffer, Sarah Jiang. She said her tweets about white people and there was a smear campaign against her. What what that woman tweeted was, it's kind of sick how much joy I get out of being cruel to old white men. And then she asked, are white people genetically predisposed to burn faster in the sun? thus logically being only fit to live underground like groveling goblins. That's uh, so it's a take. It's a take. I mean, as a white person, I do like it cool underground. I like like a cave. I, I'm sure that <laughs> very white person. My my ancestors who dwelt in caves and peat bogs probably, you know, feared the sun. And I understand. Well, this is so amazing to me because she's demanding that her former employer defend her against Statements she made and things she did that had nothing to do with her employment at the New York Times. It, these weren't things she wrote in an article. These were things she said on Twitter, sometimes unrelated to her work. The talk about chutzpah. Yeah. The, the chutzpah and solipsism and self-centeredness is just it's like a case study in what's wrong with it it is and it's all it's also just a reminder you know twitter is not real life and a lot of the problems that america had politically in the past six or eight years were driven by the addiction of people in media for twitter and the misunderstanding about how social media works and i think we have in lorenz just the worst possible kind of case where she should have she you know the washington post her new employer ought to insist that she direct her work toward the product that people are paying i don't know was the washington post cost 150 bucks a year or whatever people are paying money 
to consume the Washington Post. They don't want her giving it away. Uh, they shouldn't want her giving it away on Twitter. And also, and this is something I talked about, oh, by the way, you can check out the latest episode of The Problem with Jon Stewart, on which I appear, that came out today. It's fantastic. Guys, we're going to break this down next week when, and, uh, when I have a chance to listen to this. And the one of the things we're talking about was with the Russia investigation, how by the time you got to the Mueller report, it didn't have nearly the sting that it might otherwise have because so many false stories had dribbled out on Twitter. So much of the reporting that had gone into this was for these incremental, often misleading, dribbled out stories to try to just feed the narrative for another day, to try to survive for another 20 minutes and have some more content out there. And that's the effect that it it, it does and I use the term, I often use the term moral imbeciles. If we don't have enough removed from things to look at them as a whole, you know, it's different when you're talking about Ukraine coverage or something where you people want minute by minute, like what is happening, what's the latest. But on something like, to use the example of the of Russiagate, better to have things with a little perspective than the super uh, incremental Taylor Lorenz tweet version, is all I'm saying. Chris. You really buried the lead of like this entire day. You didn't even mention. Well, I'm not going to lead with. Uh, I'm not going to lead with me. Among friends, among no. friends. So wait, can we play like 30 seconds, 45 seconds sure. of of the greatest hits of Chris with John Stewart? Let, sure. Let's hit it. The reason why I chose the Mueller report to kind of do the autopsy on was they talked a lot about the disappointment in the Mueller report, but that disappointment was the fruit of the seed that they planted. And doesn't that kind of reporting overwhelm and cancel out all the other really interesting and smart and considered reporting that exists? The problem is that we've become moral imbeciles as we are ah. being spoon-fed little pieces of outrage day by day. No, stay with the story. No, stay with the story. You can't lose any number. That's the problem. The death knell is if your numbers go down. That's why we only get one story at a time. Producers know that that will work and that will rate, so we're going to stick with the thing that people are expecting and that they know, because if you take it away from them, they may get mad, the number may go down, and they may go someplace else to get it. Did, what did you think of John? He was great. It was, we laughed a lot. It was, he was funny. And I, I do think he was sincere. I was on with Soledad O'Brien. And I'm very sorry, I can't remember the name of the guy who was from Scripps, who is part of trying to help Scripps revitalize local news. And I genuinely credit, I think, I know that I have a, a different worldview than, I have a different worldview than John Stewart probably on a number of things, but I also credit him for a real sincere inquiry. We did a lot of prep for this. There were pre-interviews, there was like really thought out and thought through. And I give him credit for, I, I, again, I don't know that he and I are always going to reach the same conclusion on this stuff, but I think he ha, uh, come, came, came to it with a real fairness and, uh, and interest that I thought was refreshing. Well, congrats. That's awesome. It was good. Very exciting. I like being celebrity adjacent. <laughs> It was celebrity adjacent adjacent. It was yeah, adjacent adjacent. I should we I should make that like my Twitter tagline. It celebrity was, adjacent adjacent via Chris. It was it was good cuz I felt like way overdressed because he wears essentially what looked like he's getting ready to perform carpentry somewhere or or just or just got off of his shift on the Long Island Railroad and I'm like in a suit cuz that's the way I know how to go on TV. But uh it was a lot of fun. I was really grateful so that they had me. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Um we have another follow-up to a previous story, which was the Project Veritas sting on the New York sting. Times' Matthew Rosenberg. Sting. Which was, yeah, it was. It was great. So Chris Chris just can't. I mean, Project Veritas could have, like, a Pulitzer Prize winning, like, actual news report and do nothing wrong. And Chris would be like, uh, 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 uh. I, I, what, what they do is wrong. They could... Do nothing wrong, and you'd be like, well, we'll wait and see. When they do nothing wrong, I'll check it out. But for now, what they do by secret uh, recordings and editing responses in the light least favorable and using attractive people and approaching to people in bars and all kinds of stuff is not – it's not journal. Whatever it is, it's not journalism. Okay. So the New York Times 
their uh, one of their top dogs, Cliff Levy, sent out a memo after their one of their national security correspondents, Matt Rosenberg, was caught on tape trashing his colleagues and saying they way overreacted to the January 6th attacks and basically calling his colleagues a bunch of babies. We talked about this last Mm -hmm, week. mm -hmm. So Cliff Levy sends a memo to New York Times staffers that says, we well, we favor transparency in our work, dot, dot, dot. We'd like to remind you to take extra care if someone unfamiliar to you asks you to talk about the Times. Please be aware that this could be an effort to surreptitiously record you with audio or vi- video. So we at The Beacon did a fun write-up. First rule of The New York Times, do not talk about The New York Times. And I think that's good practice. I, I, you know, the, these days you have to be careful wherever you go. And I don't want to re- reveal inside ink-stained wretches, the, su- the super secret ink-stained wretches info, just because some comely lass approaches me. Now, we don't even know she was a comely last. Chris just thinks so little of Mr. Matt Rosenberg. That oh, was, no, that would be more. She was a comely last. It would be more it would, that, 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 it extra, that extra steps were taken to entice him into. Because really what, what she got him to do was what? Brag. And you know what's easy to get men to do? Brag. Men are bragger. Lo, well, you know, I'm a lot tougher than these wimps over there like that. I'm I'm pretty hardcore. I'm not like these other guys. And you can just imagine her saying, oh, tell me more about your bravery. Tell me more about how tough you are. Well, yeah. No, I wasn't scared during exactly. the speech. Exactly. 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 <laughs> Man, you know, the, the uh, male vanity is is probably, the of all the male vices, the, the most damaging to men over time. Vanity is, it, a man cannot walk by a mirror without looking at his reflection. The difference between men and women is of course, women look and they're like, I need to improve this. I need to do whatever else. Men, no matter how fat or ugly we are, like, not bad. Looking pretty good. There's We've a, done it again. There's a great line in the book Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of vanity, <laughs> that says that, like, women have the reputation as the vainer sex, but it's like, you know. Far and away, it's men. men. Oh, far and uh, away, it's so men. We should, I should try to pull that line. Far, far. Obviously, uh, more eloquent than that. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Uh, you got the next one on cable news coverage of Ukraine. Well, you know, first, well, before we go to that part of Ukraine, let's hear just a little bit about how the news responded to uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's speech to a a joint session of Congress, or or not a joint session of Congress, members of both houses of Congress uh, convened in what looked like a middle school auditorium at at, at the Capitol Visitor Center. So let's take a take a quick listen. A standing bipartisan ovation for the Ukrainian president, an impassioned speech in which he addressed the U.S. In a historic forum, at a historic moment, a pivotal one potentially in our world. And, and he referenced Martin Luther King. I mean, he understands an audience only like uh, somebody who has been in front of an audience outside of politics can. So this is one of those events where if you're an anchor, right, you're just, you have Zelensky who, by the way, can I just, in, in terms of petty complaints, they should have had the immediacy of the translation, the, the simultaneous translation. Simultaneous translation is not as good as if you can read it and look at it and do it. And what they should have done is had a translator with a strong voice that sounded like Zelensky's read the prepared remarks while Zelensky was giving them in Ukrainian. And then, and by the way, I thought that the best thing that Zelensky did in terms of the the television product, and remember this guy's a television actor, in terms of television product, he, do, he does the first part in Ukrainian. They show that very moving video about the Russian air attacks. And then he speaks in English, and his English is pretty good. So it's a surprise, right? So he switches, and it's a surprise, and he does the closing in English very good. I agree. I thought it was disconcerting to have his male voice in the background and the yep. female, female translator. It was it was weird. Yeah, you didn't you don't need the urgency there. It's sort of like in the old days, a lot of the what Americans thought was Winston Churchill during the Second World War was actually an actor portraying Winston Churchill for better audio content. So just a very British kind of sounding actor. We would fight them on the beaches. But anyway, so... There's the there's an interesting dichotomy for news coverage. So you have these important moments where anchors uh, are trying to 
elevate the discussion and and imbue it with a sense of history and talk about how important it is and try to sort of drive upward. But then there's always the danger of emotional exploitivity, right? So here's uh, here's a couple of examples of that. Look at what happened in 1960. Fidel Castro and okay, JFK. Stop. I'm sorry. JFK I can't. Blank. I can't. I can't I'm not going to. I'm sorry. I'm not going to. I'm not going to take the anti-communist lecture from anybody because, of course, I agree with you. Siri, as a parent, any person around the world can't imagine your unbearable loss. Above all, of losing your children. Could you tell me about that? So there you have Erin Burnett. She's talking to the father of a child killed in the Russian air campaign against Ukraine. And there you have Tucker Carlson uh, yelling at Republican congresswoman from Florida about about not being a commie and not out commie. Yeah, exactly. So the these things, you know, when you I just I saw that Aaron Burnett thing and I was like, you know, 30 years ago, I just don't think we would have had news anchors uh, sobbing on on television. If if the story is, this is my always advice to people. When and broadcast media is particularly hard. You know, you know the famous example of the guy at the Hindenburg crash. Oh, the humanity! I wish I could remember his name right now. But we everybody knows what he said. Oh, the humanity! So people don't remember the humanity of the crash. They remember the feelings that that reporter had that radio allowed to come into Americans' homes. Herbert Morrison. Herbert Morrison. Well done. Google. But the danger with broadcasts, and especially 24-hour news, the anchor's emotional response to either being called a commie sympathizer or the anchor's, and even worse, when the anchor's response to the emotional situation becomes the story itself, then we have a problem. And then we have the, the, the personality-driven coverage that doesn't even include the personality you're covering. It's just your own personality. It's just the people at your own place. And that's, that's why you have to be careful when you're consuming lots of news and moments like this that don't get sucked down the emotional rat hole. Isn't, I mean, Tucker's show is, the whole thing is his whole personality. Yep. It's just, it's how he's feeling. He's upset. He's this, he's mad, he's sad, he's mad. That is what people tune in for. I know it's just not very good for them is what I'm saying. And it's not news. That's that's a, that's, I guess I'll put it this way. Aaron Burnett or Tucker Carlson are providing a kind of reality television where their feelings and their emotions are interposed between the the news consumer and the product. And that that comes with dangers and it, and is and. When you're emotionally manipulating people around something as tragic as what we're witnessing in Ukraine and something as important as that, that is problematic. Speaking of personality (laughs) news coverage, um, Dylan Byers at Puck News uh, broke this story yesterday. Well, essentially, Keith Olbermann leaked this because he's... How would we describe... Let's let's remind people who Keith Olbermann is. Should we just let Olbermann describe Olbermann? Yeah, here, have a taste. All right, hit it. And to ask it of Mr. Bush, have you no sense of decency, sir? You're a fascist. Get them to print you a T-shirt with fascist on it. When somebody asks you, sir, about your gallant, noble, self-abnegating sacrifice of your golf game so as to soothe the families of the war dead, this advice, Mr. Bush, shut the hell Oh. I probably owe George W. Bush an apology. Shut up. And I would happily take a third term of George W. Bush rather than this. Well, so B- Dylan Myers breaks this. And for, and for pe- people under 40. I'm under 40. Right. And But you were weird. You were paying attention to this stuff when you were young. Keith Oberman, at the, when MSNBC rebranded itself as sort of the opposition to Fox News and became sort of a harder left version. And this is way back to when Air America was going to oppose right-wing talk radio. And this was like the, mil- the getting mil- getting militant on the media left. And Keith Oberman was the guy who, what did he call it every night? He had an award, the worst person, worst in, the person word, in the world. Worst per- and like I was working for Sean Hannity and every day it was Sean, Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity. <laughs> and he was, the, in, the, in, the days, in, the, in the days when the American left felt like all that was necessary was to remove George Bush from power, and that all would be sweetness and light again. Keith Oberman was the guy there ranting about Dick Cheney and being a little nutty. He left and went to 
he went to ESPN for a while. ESPN, then there was Current TV. He's been on a journey. So he clearly leaked that he he was pitching himself desperately to go back to MSNBC when they had a leadership change. And my favorite was, so he leaked all these emails showing, like, they really were serious about having me back. And I loved one of his emails, quote, I think it's not too far out on a limb to believe that a revived countdown would, at a minimum, produce numbers now in the same, you know, this and that, but basically better numbers than they're getting. This just was, to me, like such a window into how these people get addicted to fame. And his brilliant new idea is to do the same show he was doing like 15 years ago and he just wants to be back on camera so bad and then he's so pissed that they didn't take him up on it that he's going to leak the whole tranche of emails i i think first he's probably right that oh i'm sure he's yeah. he's probably right that the the snark of what's his name who's on at a or the who's Jesse who, Waters? No, who, no, 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 no. Well, that's true. But who is Oberman seeking to replace at MSNBC? Chris Hayes. So the the snarkiness of Chris Hayes probably doesn't play as well as Oberman's like over the top, right? Bombastic, highly emotional performances that he used to give. So I assume he'd probably be right. He's got a bigger name and he's a better broadcaster. So maybe he's right. But your point is a hundred percent right which is go do something else, right? Like go be happy doing something else. But for people who, and you see it frequently, people who get addicted to celebrity, I've told you this before, Roger Ailes' line about when somebody would be misbehaving and he would say, show them the red light, which meant that they hadn't been getting on enough and they were getting weird and agitated and they weren't on TV enough. So show them the red light. And he would say, it doesn't matter what you show them. Put them on .com. Put them on a documentary. Put them on whatever. Just they need to they need to be in the studio and they need to see the red light to feel validated. And I want to tell you, if that's how you feel, you seek help, right? <laughs> seek help because— You know a lot of these people, Chris. I know a lot of these people. And I know the—you know, it's a weird feeling— I do plenty of TV now, and I'm happy. I love to do TV. TV's fun. I enjoy it. I I don't miss it at all. I enjoy doing Jon Stewart. I enjoy the hits that I do now. It's great. I love it. And it's it's good for some things. I'm happy being adjacent adjacent. (laughs) It's good for some things. But it is not the point of anything. It is it it is ancillary, not the point of anything. And poor Keith Oberman. I mean, you just... I just feel for a guy. Hold who on, can't. I want to look up how old he is now to see, like, dude, you like, hang it up. He's sixty-three. I mean, oh my god, do you want to be sixty-three and like, please take me back and give me my old show back? Yeah, and I really can do better than the young guy with a family who's there now, Chris Hayes. Oh yeah. my god, man, it's not. It's not super. <laughs> it's not super. But you know, we all get obsessed sometimes, Eliana. Well, I, I'm. Not not throwing shade on anybody for being obsessive or compulsive or, you know. I'm well, te- I'm teeing you up here. Yes. Yes. Okay. Our obsessions. There you it go. It is that time. I'm going to go first. Mm-hmm. Going to break tradition. I am going to go first. My obsession is related to Ukraine coverage, but the New York Times had a piece about this new Justin Smith, Ben Smith venture that doesn't have a name yet. But it is a but, name that appears that is the same in dozens yeah, of languages or whatever. And um, so beyond your wordle. So this is the first semi-interesting thing that I've heard Justin Smith say about this new media company. Mm-hmm. He did. So who's Justin? Who's Justin? Justin Smith? Smith is the former Bloomberg CEO who's starting this new venture. With and he had ben been Smith. at the Atlantic before. Uh, he was at the Atlantic and then at Bloomberg. Uh, yeah. And he and Ben Smith, who are cousins, they're not related. They're not related. Have started this new venture, and Justin Smith did an interview with Ben Smith. Not that the media world is incestuous. Justin, Justin Smith, Smith did an interview with Ben Smith, former employer. The New York Times. Yes. To talk about what their vision for. Uh, no, no, no. The interview was not with the New York Times. The New York Times reported on the interview. Oh, okay. The interview was, it was like at some conference. Okay. Uh, let's see. Online seminar. 
Zoom interview sponsored by the Harvard Business School Club of New York. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Awful. Wow. Ugh. Wow. Okay. So so he had said a ton of pompous things when, this first, <laughs> when they first announced this, but this is sort of interesting. He said the he thinks the era of the foreign correspondent is over, and this is exactly what he said. The idea that you send some well-educated young graduate from the Ivy League to Mumbai to tell us about what's going on in Mumbai in 2022 is sort of insane. Instead, he said he will pursue, quote, very educated English English language educated journalists all around the world, describing an opportunity for, quote, scaling local and regional newsrooms at a lower cost. So I'm just going to translate that. He will pursue very Ivy educated English language journalists who are from the country. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's the for it's the like international student from India who went to Harvard, who then went back to India. Chris, this gives us an opportunity because Fox News, your former employer, oh, no. lost not foreign correspondents, but, you know, the the kind no, of... No, foreign... Co- yeah, foreign correspondents for sure. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin Hall was... Was his title foreign correspondent? I thought he was State Department correspondent. Uh, well, he was uh, worked out of London and... Yeah. So he... So, but a, a foreign correspondent to me is a person who goes abroad to cover the news. And Benjamin Hall certainly is that. And they So he was badly wounded and evacuated and then two others died. Well, including a long time and Pierre I'm, I'm going to honor your memory by not, not trying to pronounce your full last name and I'm sorry, but a beloved uh, guy at Fox who really fulfilled the foreign correspondent role, a guy who you know, this dangerous work, and it was dangerous work he liked to do. I've I've had the privilege to know a lot of great foreign correspondents over the years, and it takes something special to say, when the worst thing happens in the world, I want to go there. I want to go there and do it. And this is this can be noble work if you bring yourself to it. And risking your own life to tell important stories is a thing we still need people to do. Whatever we do about how, whatever we call them, whether they're Ukrainians who were educated in America or whether they're Americans who go to Ukraine, whatever, we th- we still need the physical courage and that stuff. So it's uh, it's important. So what do you think about the question? Like, is the era of the foreign correspondent over? I thought it was at least an interesting like discussion point. I, th- I have thoughts, but. Well, I, I think the whether whether it is a person of. Another from another nationality, well, well, baby, let me take one step back. It's always been a good idea if you can have a person who is deeply connected to the place that is being covered, right? Whether they have relatives from there or whether their parents were from there. Like the deeper the connection, the better you're going to do as a, as a correspondent when you're trying to get news. But the important part, I, and I guess the Smiths are trying to invert it, the important part is you have to have a connection to both sides because when you're talking to an American audience, you have to understand American culture, language. You have to be culturally literate. You have to be that so that you can explain things in terms that we understand. And conversely, you have to have a deep knowledge. So whichever way you want to achieve that, it sounds like what the Smiths are talking about is that you get a you get a better value. Because instead of sending an American, you are using local talent and developing local talent. And I guess that makes sense and, and maybe can work. But it won't work if those if those folks don't have a deep understanding of America because Americans aren't going to consume I think they're foreign not, news. Uh, so there's a little haziness around this in that they are talking about an international audiences. So if yeah, they what, are they, build, what do they want to make? It's still hazy. But yeah. if they want to build a news product in India, then yes, like you don't need to go send an American correspondent to broadcast to the Indian audience. Then that makes sense to me. But I also think there's a familiarity help. Mm-hmm. So yes, like if Benjamin Hall is the, the State Department, you know, whatever, the correspondent for Fox News, the audience builds a relationship with him. They want to see him in Ukraine, in, you know, in here and there and all around the world. It's why people like seeing, like, Richard Engel, you know? His yeah, whole yeah, yeah. thing is going, like, here, there, and everywhere. And clearly that works. Like, it's a little ridiculous, but, you know, that works for for them. So I think there's, like, there's a, there's an interesting idea there, depending on who the audience is. And you can, of course, get people from different nationalities, like, broadcasting to different countries. But 
I do think, like, for an American audience, they want to see people they're used to. It doesn't have to be an American, but right. they want to see people they're used to going here, there, and everywhere. It, and putting themselves there. Part of the job of a foreign correspondent, I think this is really important, and a war correspondent, uh, I got to work with the great Mike Hedges, who covered every American conflict from uh, probably Panama to Iraq and everything in between, connoisseur of camel bolognese when he was in Somalia. He, he, he got, to see, got to see and do all that stuff. Sending someone there to report is important because it helps Americans be there, right? I'm here on your behalf. I'm your representative, and I'm, bringing, I'm sending this information back to you. So I think that I, I definitely think that is a thing of value. What I want to know is how insufferable is our profession as reflected by the word game that has sprung up around the potential name for the Smiths, for the Smiths Project. What is it? It's a word that appears. It's that, the same in a bunch of different languages. So, like, taxi is the same. Or coffee. Or, here, yeah. or in Vietnam or in South America or whatever. And, yeah, I mean, who freaking cares? Well, lots of journalists cared because the Times inclusion of it Kicked off. Oh, by the way, I have an ethical question for you. Yes. So, in order to promote my upcoming book, available available for pre-order now. In order to to promote my upcoming book, I have given my I have hired a person to tweet on my account. How do you feel about Her this, Samantha? No, I would not. A- I would not ask the great Samantha Goldstein to to schlep tweets around for me. But I ha- I have hired a public relations professional to tweet promotional tweets on my account. How do we feel about this? I think that's fine. Is it okay? Because I don't want to be on Twitter. I just, it's horrible. Ugh, I wish I could hire someone to do tweets for my account. (laughs) I hope to get that big (laughs) one day. So that, in the spirit of full disclosure, I am not going to look at Twitter because Twitter makes me unhappy, but I'm going to try to capitalize on Twitter's audience. I also, I don't like it. It's not, it's not good. And it makes us dumb. I want to briefly obsess, only briefly obsess, over the change in what's coming for... So Substack gets all of this attention for we're going to change the way media works because we're going to have direct payments to journalists for doing their work. And there are people, uh, I love to talk about Jeff Maurer, who... Uh, Maurer? Maurer? Maurer. Maurer? Sorry. I have no idea how his name is pronounced but i'm gonna correct but it's i might it's it's, i might be wrong and it's great and there's lots of great there's substack stuff that i love and dispatches has relationship with substack and i get why all of that's important but here's a telling thing is the news last week that substack has launched a standalone smartphone app now you say who cares and i say i get you but it's interesting because if the model that for a lot of that a lot of people, a lot of smart people said was going to take place in journalism was that we'd be moving to this sort of Substackian thing where individual creators, Taylor Lorenz would would dig would dig the idea of the Substack future where brand people are brands and blah 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 blah. But if Substack has an app. That means that it's moving away from its email-based technology and email-based strategy and toward being a bundler of news. And we talked a long time ago. So Substack is basically email for money. You sign up and it is it is it started as a as a basically a way to create a payment platform for journalists or whomever to get paid for newsletters. Who cares about the method of delivery? Who cares if it's email or you're paying to access it through an app? But what it means is that Substack, and he, we talked about this a couple months ago, the founder of Substack said in an interview, well, maybe we'll start bundling the uh, offerings on Substack. And it's like, you mean like a newspaper? You mean you might bundle stories together and items together that you think readers might find of interest? So this is, this is a very long way of saying what we are living through right now in the media is going to be a re-conglomeration. Yeah. We're going to see we've had atomization, and now we're going to go through re-conglomeration where totally new, new sources develop new br- the value of individual brands. Some will, be, some will be legacy brands that carry over. Some will be new brands that begin. But the idea that we were going to go to some totally decentralized, non-gatekeeping 
non-whatever was always flummery, and we're seeing it play out now. It's just we want it to happen immediately instead of the fact that it takes 10 or 20 years to work its way through. Well, we go through these cycles of bundling and unbundling. Right. Of things are bundled in newspapers, then people go off and become their own brands in different vehicles, and then they're rebundled and they will be unbundled again. News consumers need, I, as a news consumer, I need, I'm paying the Wall Street Journal. I'm paying the New York Times. I'm paying, God help me, the Washington Post for their bundling, right, and their news judgment and their gatekeeping to make it possible for me to consume a broad and, – and I've subscribed to several substacks. One of the best substacks I subscribe to is a bundler, right? <laughs> it's a news aggregator. So It is? What is it? I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to say. I'm not, I don't know. I have to think about that. I'll have to think about that one. But anyway, there are lots of ways that this can go. But, but, but aggregation or bundling or packaging is not a bad thing, and, but neither are atomized emails. It's just this is, as you say, quite rightly, this is the circle of life. Yeah. Chris, it's that time. Oh, yeah? It's Chris's favorite time where I have to say something nice. <laughs> Chris leads by example. Well, in favorite I, items of the week. I'm going to I'm I'm going to totally comp out and say my favorite of the week are our readers or our our listeners and our correspondents. And I want to I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name the the correspondent who uh Send an email. Chris's favorite item of the week is the correspondent who wrote to complain about me. No, not well, both of us. Both uh, of us. No, both please. of us. No, both of us. Don't worry. No, we had, we had we had a, a listener who had pointed out that we'd gotten a little saltier in our language and our topics. Please. No, I. Me too. Chris licked the, and and I want to encourage everyone. We appreciate the feedback. We appreciate the feedback, and you can email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. Yes. You can email us, wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. And we are listening, and we want your input. And we, I want to thank everybody for the great suggestions about which journalists we should be interviewing for our interview series. And you'll see those uh, starting to matriculate soon. But I am really grateful for you guys. And I want to, if you will indulge me for St. Patrick's Day, with this, the a, a, a poem of a prayer. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, Swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the rock, and fir- uh, uh, stability of the earth, and the firmness of the rock, and that is how we feel when we know that we have the support of our dear listeners. Okay, mine is not <laughs> like that. Mine is a shout out to a college classmate who where'd you go I to college? Did you, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Uh, who I did not know. Chris is making fun of me because okay. I went to Yale. Oh, Yale. My hu- so my, this is funny. My husband, the Beacon, has a March Madness pool, and Yale and Princeton played last weekend for the Ivy League championship, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the winner would go to the tournament. So I turned on the game, and Yale is now in the tournament. So it's the, true. So the Beacon had... March Madness pool, and I jokingly replied to my colleagues, like, how do I just pick Yale to go all the way? Well, my husband was like, I'm taking control of this. I'm doing your March Madness pool and submitting it. And he's like, we're trying to win money, not lose money, so we are not picking. <laughs> won't you feel, won't he feel bad when, when, when the Eli goes all the way? Yes, when the Bulldogs take the crown. So a college classmate of mine who I did not know but whose career I followed, because it's super interesting, she's the ESPN Sports journalist Mina Kimes. Okay. I think she was a couple years behind me. She stuck up for a fellow woman sports journalist, um, a a reporter from the sports website Defector.com. Are you familiar with it? Is it good? I was not familiar with it. Okay. But this woman tweeted, one day I really, really will write about the women in sports media who look around and crunch the numbers and reach the accurate conclusion that their success hinges largely on their willingness to play the hot girl who is also one of the guys. So she was basically blasting attractive. Which is the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. So Mina sees this and Mina is an attractive woman who super accomplished ESPN. Uh, Her picture is up at the top. She's always on ESPN. Okay. So Mina jumps in, and she was not the target of this. Somebody right. else was the target. And she says, 
um, Mina jumps in and says, how about women in sports media who S-H bleep T on other women over trivial things for self-righteous reasons? And the woman says, not everything is about you, thinking that Mina thought it was about her, but thanks for the epic own. And she wrote, I know it's not about me. I saw who it was about, and I think you're acting like a bully. Which is totally true. And so good for you, Mina. And we are linking the New York Post article about this up top. I liked it. I thought that was I thought that was cool. The con- I do I do the convention of where it's like here's your fun gal friend who is seated at a table with three dudes for the uh, default setting for sports broadcasting now is a little trite, but I take your point. Well, she she says uh you know, there there are tons of interesting things like bad things actually happening in sports media right now and this was a really stupid battle to pick and this pretty girl did nothing wrong (laughs) pretty girl blameless is our headline (laughs) i like that (laughs) all right chris that is all the time we have left for the news about the news again if you have a story you want us to talk about or a complaint about chris (laughs) and his lack of notification that he appeared Oh, on John Stewart Show. Email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's podcasts with an S. Wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.